What's up, everyone? This is episode 225 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, I think a lot of you would agree with me that this is a great week to be an NBA fan. We started things off with the Bradley Beal trade, and things definitely seemed primed for more major moves from there. And then that, of course, all coincides with Thursday's draft. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Maybe your team has made some moves or your player's been traded, and you've got some decisions to make. I know I've talked about this several times before. It can be tough for team collectors. Uh, If we're talking about incoming players, I'm getting to the point where I still try to wait for the newer stuff to come out. It's why I really haven't picked up any nice King stuff for Tyrese Halliburton, although I will say it's awful tempting. But I've got enough Malcolm Brogdon Bucks cards and Victor Oladipo Magic cards that I, you know, I think I should resist the urge. And I had a couple nice Oladipos in my showcase this weekend, but no bites on those. It's kind of hard to move his stuff now. If I get to the point, though, where I can't wait for you know, a certain player, let's say an an incoming player, I try to buy something from a set that I really like, which is why I still have a 2018-2019 status draft night auto of DeAndre Ayton. And you know what? I'm still okay with that. An autograph card with a sticker that was signed on draft night by the number one pick. That's a piece of history to me. Even if his signing with the Pacers didn't work out, that was a very eventful day. I, I remember it like it was yesterday because I was flying to the Dallas card show. But um, I should note also that because of the COVID draft, Halliburton doesn't have one of those. So that wasn't even an option for that. So I've had to get a little bit creative. But speaking of draft night autographs, if you are cruising social media on Thursday night and you see your team post a picture of your draft pick signing their Panini stickers, do your part to preserve hobby history and screenshot it. And if you don't mind, you can send it my way as well because you guys know I love that kind of stuff. And, you know, I didn't have to use to beg for that. Panini used to do that themselves. You know, they made a pretty big deal out of draft night, but that interest has waned over the years. If I hadn't taken a screenshot of the Nuggets post of Christian Brown signing his stickers last year, I wouldn't even know for sure if they were signed on draft night anymore. But I digress. Anyway, like I said, if you see pictures of guys signing those, let me know. All right. I've got a couple things I want to share with you today. I set up at a show this past weekend, and I have a few observations from that process. I've got a couple pieces of mail I'm going to talk about, and then I want to make sure I devote some time to some comments from Fanatics executives at their most recent Investor Day, because I would say that they are um, pretty telling, for lack of a better word, so you'll want to make sure to stay tuned for that. Okay, so this past weekend, I went to one of my local card shows, and that in itself is not anything out of the ordinary. I think this was my fourth weekend in a row at a show. This time was a little different, though, because I set up as a dealer, which is something I rarely do now. I think this is the second time I've set up all year, so stuff was starting to accumulate, and it was time. More importantly, I knew it could help me raise funds for the National, because no one wants to walk around the National and not be able to buy anything. Speaking of national, another reason I wanted to do this local show, I figured if I repriced everything now, it would still be somewhat current at the end of next month. So, you know, things aren't moving as fast as they used to. 
So I wouldn't have to reprice it all then when I get ready to go to the national because you never know what's going to happen. You want to have your prices ready when you're there. For example, back in 2021, I was sitting down on that red carpet in the back. You guys that have been to Chicago, you know what I'm talking about. And I was just going through some stuff, kind of, you know, giving myself a little bit of a break from being on my feet all day. And a guy was walking by and he just noticed something in my box. And the next thing I know, I'm walking away with the 67 mantle because we sat there and we made a trade on the spot. So you just never know. You want to have that stuff ready. So that was part of my goal for getting ready for this past weekend because I figured, all right, those prices won't change too much before the national. So anyway, I worked pretty hard throughout the week to get everything organized. The majority of my stuff's under 25 bucks. So, um, you know, not too bad. I made a two row basketball dollar box that I thought would be a big hit. You might have even seen that on YouTube this past weekend. I was surprised though. That stuff didn't really move. Uh, and that was good stuff too. I mean, we're talking like, you know, base Ray Allen rookies, um, just stuff of, of that caliber. So nothing amazing, but you know, low end autos, that kind of thing. The three to $15 stuff though was really popular. People were just stacking that stuff up. Um, sold way more of that than my dollar box, way more of that than my showcase stuff. That was very popular. And I had probably four or five people tell me they were trying to add inventory. I believe for whatnot, which you know, good for them if they're willing to put all that work in. I don't have the patience. I hate shipping. It's not for me. That's why I like ComC so much. And honestly, I thought the whole whatnot selling thing was a phase that would be over by now, but it looks like it's still going strong. And, you know, if you're willing to stack stuff up and do a little bit of a discount, uh, it will benefit you as well if, if you're a dealer at a show. And you know what? I was busy enough at this show that I really didn't have a lot of time to walk around and look for cards to buy, which, you know, I like going around. I like digging in boxes. That didn't happen here, but for a good reason. You know, I suppose it was a good problem to have. I traded a small stack of cards from my value boxes for a box of used top loaders. That was the only deal I made on the show floor. I did, however, have someone walk up to the table saying he had a huge tote of cards out in his car. And before I even got up, I said, well, you know, you got to give me more info than that. What are we talking about here? And he said it, it was mixed early 90s stuff, which, you know, that didn't necessarily excite me, but I'll never turn down an opportunity to look through a lot or a box if I have the chance. So I got someone to watch my table and the two of us headed out to the parking lot. So we get there, he opens his trunk, and it's one of those huge black totes with the yellow lid. And you guys know which one I'm talking about. So in my head, I'm saying, all right, if nothing else, this is a $10 tote, right? So I'm trying to, to think of the cost up front, you know, give myself an escape or whatever here. So I ask him at the start what he wants for this thing, and he says 60 bucks. And I take the lid off, and there's, I don't know, maybe 15, maybe more of those single row boxes inside. But the whole thing's full. And I open the first box that says football, and it's a bunch of early 90s pro set stuff. I have no interest in that. I find one marked basketball, and it has a bunch of 93 Ultra. Well, that's not much better. I opened another basketball. It's mostly 91 upper deck, so you get the idea here what we're looking at. Before I went any further, I stopped and I let him know, hey, you know, this has nothing that I want in here. And he said, well, how about 50 bucks? I'll lower it. I said, no, I legitimately don't want this. And he tried to convince me that there could be something good left in there. The price kept coming down. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm really cautious about this kind of stuff because there's a good chance that three or four dealers from the same show had already passed it around. And I finally said, look, I don't want to lowball you. 
But for me to take this home, the best I can do is 20 bucks. And it wasn't until later on that I found out someone had offered 10 before me. So I guess it wasn't that low after all. In my head, I'm thinking though, you know, if I offer $20, that will pay for the tote. Uh, maybe some of the boxes are good enough where I could repurpose those. And, you know, I get a little experience cost. I enjoy going through some of this stuff. And um, so we keep going back and forth. He tries to get me to do 25. I said, no, you know, a 20 is where I'm at on this. I can't pay anymore. He tries to get me to do 25. If he gets the tote back, um, no, you know, I, I'm factoring the tote into this cost. So he finally decided he could let it go for $20 and we loaded it in my car. And I'll keep it PG here, but there was a box in there labeled Various BS. And that's a pretty good summary for the contents overall. I didn't spend a lot of time going through it at home, maybe 30 minutes tops. Uh, I did try to make a video on YouTube, but, um, you know, I sat there for 25 minutes recording, then it turns out the, the camera was at a bad angle, so I didn't even try to publish that. But it, it was a lot of junk, as expected. There were no treasures that I could find, and I can't see myself lugging all this stuff back to a show to try and pawn it off on someone else, not for the amount of money that I would get out of it. Believe it or not, some cards are nearly impossible to move at a card show. Although I guess this guy did it, so I, I just got to uh, got to go into whatever mode he did. But you know that got me thinking, though. I don't have to take this to a card show. Not too long ago, our neighborhood had a garage sale, and Mrs. Wax Museum and I decided to set up at it last minute. You know, we had some stuff in the house we needed to get rid of, so I took some of my boxes of base and a binder or two of cards, and you know what? That stuff sold better at a garage sale than it did at a card show because people are, are thinking, hey, you know, I'll, I'll get this for my brother. It's only 10 bucks, or hey, I'll get this for my son. This would be fun for him to go through. So I'm thinking I might save this stuff until the next garage sale and try to get rid of it there. If that tote's worth $10 to me, I can easily get $10 for the cards that were inside, and before I know it, I'll be close to break-even point, Worst case scenario, I'm out 20 bucks and I've got a story to tell. So anyway, uh, enough about that giant mystery tote. Uh, it's not a mystery anymore, but uh, that was my only purchase of the show. Overall, though, it was a good day. I got to hang out with some of my friends that are dealers and I accomplished pretty much everything I set out to do. So I can't complain about that at all. Okay, on to the mail. And you might remember this last week I talked about a bad eBay experience with my creased Elgin Baylor autograph where the seller offered me a partial refund. I said, no way, I sent it back. Well, I'm going to follow that up this week with a really good eBay experience that I had. And it involves me hitting the bin on a $15 patch card and shipping was a dollar or whatever the standard envelope program was which if it's a refractor or whatever, I'm fine with that. But seeing as this was a relic card, you know, I've learned my lesson. I do not want that in a standard envelope. So I messaged the seller and I said, hey, can I just pay more to have this upgraded to a bubble mailer with first class shipping? And he or she assured me that this card would be protected. But I told them, hey, look, I, I just had a bad experience and I'd like to pay more to have it sent first class to which they responded. It's okay. I just upgraded to first class, no need to pay anymore, enjoy the card, I'll have it sent out in an hour. So that was above and beyond what he had to do, and I can't think of the last time an eBay seller did that for me. So if you see something from OB Cards, that's O-B-I-C-A-R-D-S, OB Cards, go ahead and hit that purchase button and help 
him out because he was a great seller to me. And you're probably wondering what it was that he actually sold me. So I bought a 2003-2004 Fleer Patchworks National Patch Time Dual Patch. It's a lot of patch, right? Dual Patch of Germain O'Neill numbered 19 of 25. And this one's really cool because it's got a picture of Germain in his USA uniform. And the patch on the left is from the USA jersey. The patch on the right is from a Pacers jersey. And then the back of the card clarifies that both of these jerseys are game-worn. Now, I saw one of these come up for sale a couple weeks ago, but the edges were roughed up and it didn't have a serial number, um, so I just didn't want it. Now, that doesn't mean that the patches are bad if there's no serial number on it. That Fleer-era stuff, it probably just means it was a replacement copy, but I wanted to hold out. I hope I'd see another one. As with a, a lot of cards that are number 25 to less, from that era, you know, it's not likely, but I figured I would wait, and, and surprisingly it did. It showed up pretty soon after that, so I grabbed it. Now it has a home in my PC where it will likely stay for a very long time. Okay, the final card I want to talk about is a triple patch from 2007-2008 SP Game Used featuring, are you ready for this, Brian Cook, Kwame Brown, and Luke Walton. While I do like to pick up nice cards of obscure players, this one wouldn't normally be on my radar. However, as I was browsing patch listings, the Brian Cook patch really stood out to me because it was a piece of the Larry O'Brien patch they used for the NBA Finals, and I collect final stuff. Now, seeing as this was not an official Finals-branded card, that left me wondering where exactly this patch is from, so I had to kind of put the pieces together. Brian Cook was a rookie, in the 03-04 season. I pulled tons of Brian Cook stuff back then when I was chasing LeBron. This card was made in 2007. Well, the only finals that the Lakers went to in that time frame was 2004. Something else to consider. Sometimes teams will wear finals-related gear at the start of the next season when they have their ring ceremony, so just because you have a finals patch doesn't always mean it's actually from the finals. Well, in this case, the Lakers didn't win in 2004, so this might be the only instance that that Pistons title works to my benefit because it confirms to me that this patch has to be from the 04 Finals. Outside of that, it's just a really nice-looking card, so I'm happy to add it to my collection. Uh, If you want to see that, make sure to take a look at my social media, and I'll try and get it on there so you can see for yourself. All right, before I move into today's main segment, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com, your home for buying, selling, and flipping all the hottest trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 31 million trading cards, from baseball's biggest stars like Shohei Otani, Aaron Judge, and Mookie Betts, to Marvel favorites like Spider-Man, Thor, and Captain America. ComC has something for every type of collector. Visit ComC.com today to build your collection with your favorite cards. Additionally, some of you have asked me for ways you can help support this show. The easiest way is my affiliate links like Amazon and eBay. And using these costs you absolutely nothing. Just an extra 30 seconds or so of your time. But it helps support the show. To access these links, simply go to waxmuseumpodcast.com, click the eBay logo or whatever storefront logo that you had planned on shopping at, shop as planned, so whatever you were going to buy anyway, just Click my link first, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hustle. 
Grind. Spam. Profit. We're the Rip Gods. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. So, some of you already know this, but Fanatics is quickly moving closer and closer to an IPO, which basically means they're going public. So, about a week and a half ago, they held another investor day. I think that's the second one in the last year now. And the idea behind an investor day is that the higher-ups in a company, typically the CEO, they talk to investors about some of their strategies moving forward. And I've seen people call this analyst day. It's, it's essentially the same thing. So at Fanatics Investment Day, we heard from Michael Rubin, the main CEO, and also Mike Mahan, who is the CEO of Collectibles. And in a moment here, I want to play a one-minute clip of sound bites for you. And just so you know, these are not comments I went in and cherry-picked. This is a compilation that Mahan himself posted on his social media. So not only is this the message they presented to investors and eventual shareholders, this is more or less the highlight reel they pieced together and they want people to see. So I'm going to play the first minute of that clip for you, and then I'm going to offer up some thoughts. We think that collectors are here to stay. We think the experience is going to be better. We think you know the, our best days are firmly ahead of us and, and couldn't be more excited about what's to come. We've innovated in that business more in the year that Mike's been here than I think in the previous 70 years of that business, and we're just getting started. Community is just fundamental to collecting. And so the hobby shop is critical. We now deal with over 700 hobby shops directly. If you think about Fanatics serving the sports <coughs> fan, Fanatics Collectibles serves the sports collector. And that, that journey we talked about, fan, fan, collector, better, you have 100 million fans, there's not 100 million collectors, right? So we have an opportunity every day to turn those fans into collectors. When we show up at these big events, we want it to have a modern sensibility. We want to connect with collectors. We want to bring collectors together. Now, if you've seen the full clip, there's another minute at the end, but it's just Mayhan talking about a Ricky Henderson rookie. So I'm going to skip that part. There was enough to take in in that first minute anyway. And that's what I want to do now. Obviously, there was a lot of cheerleading at this event, and, and that's kind of the point, to get investors excited. So I don't have any issue with that. And of course, Mayhan sprinkled in some of the things us longtime collectors want to hear as well. Things like, quote, community is fundamental to collecting, and hobby shop is critical. I think everyone in the hobby would agree with both of those. Well, there have been people out there that have spoken out against card shops, so I guess I should say most people would agree with those. Now, even though Mayhan said that, I'm not really convinced that they're going to cater to either the collector or the hobby shops. And that's not just blind speculation. I've, I've talked about how they need to court collectors as Panini did in the early years. I'll discuss that in more detail shortly. But I don't think we've seen that in the past year. And they might be courting influencers, and that has a major effect, but I don't think they're courting collectors. As far as hobby shops go, I've talked to people that run shops and outside some of the major super successful shops, I think Fanatics is going to make things even more difficult for shops before all is said and done. There are going to be issues with allocation. I know some shops have been doing group breaks to help keep things moving. Looks like that could be affected too, so who knows. But based on my conversations with people who run shops, it's not looking good. And finally, Mayhan mentioned trying to convert 100 million fans into 100 million collectors. And we know that not everyone that is a sports fan has the collecting gene, so it probably won't happen, but I have no problem with them trying to bring people over. I'm more concerned with the how or the why, because when he talks about moving people from fans 
to collectors to betters, it almost makes it sound like he sees us, the collectors, as a gateway or just a means to an end, especially when you consider the fact that they're making aggressive moves in the world of sports betting, like the attempted acquisition of points bet. And I say attempted because it looks like DraftKings has swooped in here at the last minute with an even higher offer. So they're in some sort of a battle for that, but they're still pursuing it. So anyway, uh, that is what Mahan had to say. It's pretty clear he's more about the collecting experience than the actual product. He doesn't strike me as a card person. We've seen how that's worked out for other card companies before. While it's not fair to project their failures onto him, at the same time, history tends to be cyclical in nature, so it's worth keeping that in mind as all of this plays out. Now, the other soundbite in this clip that I want to talk about came from Michael Rubin, a name we've heard many times over the last year. And I want to read that comment for you again real quick to give it another chance to sink in. He said, We've innovated that business meaning the sports card business, more in the year Mike's been here than I think in the previous 70 years of that business. If your BS meter isn't going crazy when you hear something like this, I don't know what to tell you. Because he's saying they've done more for cards and the business of cards in one year than the previous companies have done in 70. And quite frankly, I don't even know what he's referring to. Is it the MLB debut patch, which they teased as, quote, the biggest product announcement in the history of trading cards? Is it the breaking and streaming stuff? Is it, you know, the acquisition of PWCC? I don't know. Maybe it was hyping up a product with Wimby autographs only to load the boxes up with redemptions instead after explicitly telling us they want to eliminate redemptions. They want to talk about how great the collecting experience is going to be, but at the end of the day, if the product still sucks, it's all for nothing. And... When I saw Fanatics was taking over, I was very cautious when it came to speculative content. I've said that all along. I also didn't want to be a super harsh critic of some of their earlier stuff, because I understand that companies need time to get things going. So I'm willing to excuse some things along the way, and I'm willing to listen to them talk about the things they want for the future. But when they jump on stage and lie to investors by telling them that they've already revolutionized the industry mind you, at the expense of the people and the companies that came before them, that's where I take exception. And that's where I want to make it abundantly clear that I don't think they've done much of anything to make this a better place. Forget revolutionizing the industry. And like I said, I wouldn't even hold them to that after just one year if they weren't already making such foolish claims. And this is where the topic of narrative comes into play once again. I've talked a lot about this lately with different hobby companies. Not because I want to make it an issue, but because they make it one, and they should be called out for it when it happens. There are a lot of powerful people out there and a lot of powerful companies that are trying to change the narrative in ways they shouldn't. It's not right. And let it be known, with this most recent comment, Michael Rubin just threw his hat into the ring as well. Something to watch out for. All right, well, there you have it. Those are my quick thoughts for the week. Maybe something there resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the website for my affiliate links. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.